May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You're my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Those are verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 40, which along with Psalm 54 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, July the 23rd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, and I'm your host. Thanks for being along. We're finishing up the book of 1 Samuel today, uh, along with we're in the book of Acts, as well as the gospel according to Mark. And so we're, we're finishing up not only the book of Acts, but the life of Saul, um, because the, the last chapter of the book book of first samuel is um it tells us of the death of saul and so we've got today uh first samuel 31 the first 13 verses um it's odd because what you'll see in second uh, samuel 1 is a different account of this episode that we're getting ready to hear about um and a, a fatal mistake <laughs> that somebody makes in order to tell david and curry favor with david believing that david will be happy that that saul has died so what we get here is is that they're fighting against the Philistines and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa and there the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Jonathan who was David's best friend and Abinadab and Melchishua the sons of Saul the battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him he was badly wounded by the archers and then he said to his armor bearer the person who was closest to him when they went into battle draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me but the armor bearer would not for he feared greatly so what did he fear he didn't fear the Philistines we know that because he didn't fear death and we know these things because the next thing he does is he kills himself after after he refuses to kill Saul Saul falls his own on his own sword to kill himself and then the armor bearer did the same so he's not afraid of death. He's afraid of what David wouldn't do. David would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, and neither will this armor bearer. He's not going to be the one responsible for striking down the one that the Lord anointed to be the king over Israel. And so he, he, is a, he shows his righteousness by fearing greatly. He's not afraid of Saul. Saul can't hurt him. He's not particularly afraid of the Philistines or death because he chooses his own death in this place. So his fear was the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord in raising his hand against the one that was God's anointed. He was he was more afraid of that than he was of death. Because at some level it, it sounds like he knew that death wasn't the final answer and he didn't want to have to answer for that killing of the Lord's anointed. And so he does. He falls on his own sword. And so Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men all died on the same day together. And so the men who were not fighting with them at Mount Gilboa see this and they all flee. They just leave. And the Philistines came and lived in those cities at that time. And so the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, so they would the spoils of war, they would take their, their armor and their uh, weapons and anything else they might have on their person. They found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, and they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. So the people can now rejoice because King Saul is dead. 
the one who has been their sworn enemy, the one who, who was supposed to have eradicated them after he er- eradicated the Amalekites. He was supposed to utterly defeat them and deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. But he failed to do that with the Amalekites, and now he ends up losing his life here in battle to the Philistines. And so they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. So this whole thing about putting his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, that, that's their god. And remember that David has gotten Goliath's armor and his sword. He's gotten that from one of their temples, one of their the Jewish temples. And they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. And, and, and what, what that actually is going to say is, along with his sons. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and buried them there. They took their bones and buried them, or they burned them there, sorry, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So who are these men, these men of Jabesh-Gilead? They are Israelites, and yet when... When all Israel had determined to go up against the house of Benjamin, which is what Saul is from, when they determined to go up against them, that because of um, the mistreatment of, of a concubine, of one of the priests, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead did not go up against Benjamin. And once the people saw, after the defeat of Benjamin, they felt sorry for their brothers because there were no um, women left among the tribe of Benjamin at that time. So what did they do? They turned around and said, well, Jabesh Gilead didn't go up. Let's go down there and take their women. So they went down there and took the women from Jabesh Gilead and took them up to Benjamin and and gave them there for wives, lest their brothers be wiped out from the uh, tribes. And so Saul's mother would have been from Jabesh Gilead, almost certainly. And then later, when the men of Jabesh-Gilead are being pressed by the Ammonites, they, they're about to give in, and they say, let us ask our brothers first. And so they, they send word to Israel, and, and Saul, because these are some of his kin, <laughs> takes um, the army and goes down and, and routes the Ammonites and frees the men of Jabesh-Gilead. So, so this is a familial response of the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and it speaks highly of them, because they certainly didn't have to do that. But they, they remembered what Saul had done for them. So there's one tribe that that says, yes, at least as far as we're concerned, he's a good guy. And so they go up and they retrieve the bodies of of Saul and his sons and they take them back and bury them down in Jabesh Gilead. And and like I said, it it would be kind of a family burial ground at some level because the mother of Saul is from Jabesh Gilead. So we we get this, um, it's a sad end to what began as a promising sort of a career. A, a guy who, who receives the Holy Spirit, prophesies from the beginning, does all these things, and, and leads in, in great battles, but can't continue to follow the Lord. He, he's got his own fears, his own insecurities that cause him to be ultimately a failure as God's man. And so he, he's gonna, gotta be replaced. And so David has waited all these years until Saul has died. He has, even though he's, he's known that he was God's man, God was preparing David during those years. He was anointed seven years before, but he wasn't prepared, wasn't ready to lead men, wasn't ready to lead the nation during that same period of time. In, in the same way that Moses, from, the, from his birth, was the one who was to lead Israel out of Egypt. But God had a lot of work of preparation to do to make that man fit to lead those people.
And, and what it didn't look like would be a worldly leadership course, right? Because a worldly leadership course wouldn't have said, here's what you're going to do for 40 years. You're going to go tend your father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness. But that that's, God's got his own training course. And hardship is way more often the way God trains and raises up the men and women that he, that he needs for the right hour. Because they've, they've, reluctantly in most cases let go of everything else and and cleaved themselves to him as the only thing that they have that's the reason i read that portion of the psalm that i did today was because i've been thinking a lot about about god's leadership course versus man's leadership course and god's usually puts them through a lot in order that they they've lost their desire for everything else on earth and the only thing they have left is him and now they're ready They've renounced, in one way or another, everything else, and they're prepared to lead God's people and to be God's representative before the people. And so we see this desperation in the gospel as well. Jesus has come back from over in the land of the Gerasenes, and he has contracted so much uncleanness. It's unbelievable. Like I said, he's gone to the place where they believe the gates of hell. He's gone to the tombs to a demon-possessed man who cuts himself. So there's blood and all that kind of stuff among the tombs, and then pigs enter the picture. I mean, it, it doesn't get much worse. Jesus couldn't have defiled himself ritually any more fully than he did. And then he comes back, and as soon as he gets there, and, and they know where he's been. I mean, it only goes one place. So they know where he's been. They don't know all the details. But one of the rulers of the synagogue uh, comes himself, doesn't send a servant, comes himself to see Jesus as soon as he gets off the boat and he begs him to come with him. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And then as they're going, I mean, if he, if he hasn't already contracted enough uncleanness that the man would never have him in the house, the man doesn't care at this point because there's only one thing that matters. His daughter is about to die. That's it. And if you've ever been in that place where, where everything else in the world gets shut out for this one thing, then, you, then you'll understand how it's just you and you and him. you got nothing else. you got no other hope. And nothing else in life matters. It doesn't. It barely gets into your field of vision and into your head. I've just gone through it. I know, <clears throat> and so it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters, and and that's the way this man is. All that stuff that would be ritual defilement and all that doesn't matter because his child's about to die. It, it, none of it matters. I don't care who you are. I think you have the power to do this. I don't care who you are, what other people think of you, where you've been, any of that stuff. And so along the way, what happens? A woman with an issue of blood who is herself completely unclean and shouldn't be out in public in a crowd like this because anybody who touches her is going to be defiled. She sees Jesus in this place and thinks, if I can only touch his garment, then I'll be healed. That's incredible faith. But remember what I told you a couple of days ago. When David cuts off the corner of Saul's garment, what does he do? He cut off that thing which signified the power and the authority of the man. It, it, it's written in the hem of the garment, and that's what she touches. And Jesus knows that power and authority has gone out from him because she touched that thing that represented power and authority. She wanted some of what he had. She believed in who he was. And so she connected with that. And when she did, bam, immediately stopped. The blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And the disciples look at him like he's crazy and say, what do you mean who touched you? Do you not see all these people here? Who in the world didn't touch you? But he looks around and the woman, knowing what happened to her, 
came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Nobody's going to check, right? But, but this woman's healed because of her faith, Jesus says. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She just knew that if she could connect with Jesus, if she could just get as close enough to him as that, then that would be good enough. He, she didn't need to plead her case before him. She didn't need to say a word. That there was enough power in Jesus, just in his person, that that's all she needed. And then when we think about that, when we think about the transfiguration, we see that even the garments he's wearing are transfigured. And we realize, you know, yeah, that's right. She was exactly right. He, he, his cleanliness, his holiness pervades everything that he touches and makes it whole and makes him well. And, and so the people then, the, they came from the ruler's house, messengers do, to say, don't worry about it anymore. Really sorry to tell you this. Your daughter's dead. There's no reason to trouble him further. And, and Jesus looks at the man and says, don't fear, only believe. I understand that. I understand that well. Because we had plenty of people who wanted to speak discouraging words to us along the way, from doctors to nurses to whoever. And I just kept hearing God say this, don't fear, only believe. You know, So it, it, we would have these periods of time when it was like, well, everything's horrible. And yet, and yet, I never got there. I never got to that place where it was like he's going to you know, die or whatever. It was always, no, that's not the way it's going to end. But you, know, you, you have a, a short, like two-second lull, and, and then you'd hear the voice of God saying, don't fear, only believe. In this particular case, it's not always true, but... But but, he, but they go, and what happens? Well, you know what happens. <laughs> the people laugh at him when Jesus says, why are you wailing and making all this commotion? The child's not dead but sleeping, and they laughed at him, and he said, nope, come on. And he takes the mother and father, and they go in, and he bids her, little girl, I say to you, arise, and she does. He, he just raised her up. It, it's It's miraculous the way Jesus can do things that nobody else can do. And when there's no hope, that's the same way with that woman with the issue of blood. She had been to many doctors and she had spent all the money that she had. And she was no better from that treatment. She grew worse. And, and that's exactly what we saw with Will. He was getting worse because of their treatments. And then one day, they said, well, it's the, it may be the, maybe the body's inflammatory response causing all this. And I just felt like I heard God say to me, shalom, peace, rest. Went and prayed for him. And so for the next three or four days, I kept reporting, you know, it's a quiet day today. It's a quiet day today. It's a quiet day today. But I knew that was exactly what God wanted was a quiet days. Leave that child alone. I'm doing something here. That's what God said. I'm doing this work. And he did. And because of that, nobody except the respiratory therapist who, who manhandled the, the ventilator could, be, could take any credit for it. All they did was keep him comfortable. He was getting nothing except for the stuff that kept him asleep and in a coma. Except for the respirator. And that's what did it. That rest. That's all he needed. And so I understand what that is to suffer under other, others who were trying to treat, who had every intention of doing good things and doing the right thing. And yet the only person who actually knew the right thing was him. And so it, that connection with the Almighty, that connection with him, it is our hope and is our faith. And it's our sustenance in all things, no matter how things turn out. In, in the Acts lesson, what we're seeing there is the the new church is has a crisis right this whole new christianity thing is in it's having a crisis because the the jewish 
people who have now believed that Jesus was Messiah are, are at odds with the Gentiles who have come in because they're, they're looking at them like, well, they're not. No, they've got to be circumcised. And so Paul or Peter has made the case that, hey, when I went to Cornelius's house, um, the spirit fell on those people before we baptized them even, much less didn't circumcise them, didn't even suggest that because they seemed to have everything we have. And, and there was evidence that they had everything that we had. And so then they finish that. Everybody gets quiet after, Paul, after Simon tells that. And then, then Paul and Barnabas begin to tell what's going on among the Gentiles because they've been sent to the Gentiles. And as soon as they finish speaking, James stands up. James, the brother of Jesus, stands up and says, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And then he quotes from the prophets. And then he ends up saying... Therefore, my judgment is we shouldn't trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, for what's been strangled, and from blood. I mean, it's a very simple sort of set of rules. And again, this is partially because they think this is a short-term situation. Hey, we, you know, this ain't going to take long. He's coming back really soon. Let's not bother with all that other stuff. Let's not talk about the Mosaic Law because Peter's already said, look, we couldn't keep that. Why would we lay that yoke on them? So now what we get is, is this little list of things. Stay away from things that are polluted by idols. So don't go eat in the temple of somebody's God. Don't go eat with people who are sacrificing things and, and offering them up to other gods, offering thanksgiving to other gods. Separate yourselves from anything that smacks of idol worship and anything other than Jesus is an idol. So stay away from that stuff. Pull yourself out from that which is not easy to do if that's been your whole life, but that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to come out from anything that's been sacrificed, polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, because there's a sexual ethic in Judaism that's different from the surrounding nations. And so, nope, you gotta, you, you got to change the way you think about sex. It, it's for a particular purpose and a reason. And, and it's within marriage, and, and stay away from sexual immorality. It, don't, don't stay with the sexual ethics of the culture that you're in. Nope, you got to understand that part. And then stay away from things that have been strangled in from blood because the life is in the blood. And so you don't take the life of another animal into your life. You don't mix that in your body. So don't do that either. Those are the only things they tell them to do. And, and that's enough. Those are enough things to impress the fear of the Lord upon those people. And then we'll teach you everything else you need to know. But, but those are the things that you need to do now. So we're, we're not going to require you to be circumcised. We're not going to require you to take that step because it seems like God's doing something else. He's circumcising the heart just like he said he was going to do. And that seems to be enough for God. And if that's enough for God, then by golly, it's enough for us. But cleave to him with all you have. But leave all that other stuff behind. Leave it all behind and come follow hard after Jesus. And that's really and truly all we need to tell people is to do those things and then to begin to learn and to teach them to do everything that Jesus commanded.